We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 36. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we're talking about we're not sure yet. <laughs> Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. On today's episode, we have Yakima Nation tribal archaeologist John Schellenberger. Welcome to the show, John. Hello. Thank you. Yeah, my name is John Schellenberger. I'm a member of the Yakima Nation. I'm also a tribal archaeologist, ethnographer for the tribe. All right. Well, we're very excited to have you. Yes. And can we start by talking about how did you how did you even hear about archaeology and ethnography and get into this field from the beginning? I had a brush with archaeology pretty early in life. <laughs> I like that, a brush with archaeology. <laughs> um, so I, I grew up part of my life. I, I've grown up all over the U.S. because my dad was in the military. He was a pilot. And part of my life, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. And outside of Memphis or in part of Memphis, there's a, a museum called the Chekalisa Indian Village. And it's run by the University of Tennessee. And in the 80s, they had, and even as far back as the 50s and 60s, they had uh, Native American human remains uh, burials that were pedestaled as they were excavated way back in the 40s and 50s, and they were there for display. And so people, tourists, like thousands of tourists a year would go to Chakalisa to visit this place and look at the Indian burials um, and the skeletons. And we, my mother and I both went there in the late 80s and we walked around the displays and then we, we came to this one display and my mom just burst into tears. And when you're a little kid mm-hmm. that, you know, you're a little kid that's, you know, you never see your parents cry. And so you have a real emotional reaction to that. And I didn't understand what she was looking at and I could barely see over and all I could see were bones. She was so upset. I had never seen my mom so upset. And so we walked out and there were a bunch of natives that lived around the Memphis area with picket signs and they were protesting. They were protesting the the site and the I guess the the exhibit with Native American human remains. And this was just before Nagpur was passed. Um, so that had a real profound impact on me on terms of what archaeology could do to Native Americans and kind of the foundation of what archaeology had been in the U.S., basically on the stones and bones of our ancestors. Mm-hmm. That always has stuck with me and all the way through my undergrad. And, you know, I I gravitated toward the cultural part because the cultural part was at least cultural anthropology were interested in getting perspectives of native people. At least they were when I was in school, they were interested in getting native perspectives on culture and being an active participant in my culture as a tribal member, I was powwow or I had participated in, you know, cultural events, not just powwows, but you know, religious ceremonies and what have you. And so I, I knew, I knew, I knew our culture. I knew, I, I knew it um, from the beginning 
and cultural anthropology kind of pulled me in that direction. And so I did do early field work with the Kwakwaka, the formerly known as the Kwakutl or the, the Kwakwala speakers in uh, Alert Bay, British Columbia. And then I also did field work with uh, the Nimipu people or the Nez Perce people, and then did a comparative study between the cultural uh, importance of dance and meaning and um, identity um, that, you know, dance brings to native communities. And, you know, that, that was my passion, you know, dance has always been my passion and music because everything we do as native people has music. Like, you know, there's sad songs, there's, there's happy songs, there's songs for foods or songs for um, specific events so the, every part of my life had been involved um, with music and with dance because that's just who we are. And maybe that's not as obvious to outside people or outside, you know, ethnicities, but song and dance is incredibly important to natives um, on a ceremonial level, on a social level, on a, you know, a very cultural level. So it's, it's very complex. And I was very fascinated by my ability to study that because I, I couldn't imagine at that time being able to make a living studying who I was as a, <laughs> as a native person. <laughs> right. And, and it, but, you know, archeology span was always there because it was always the remains of our ancestors. And, and my perception of archeologists at that time in my undergrad was, was not that great, especially considering and this was 2000 to 2004 when we were just ramping up uh, the Kennewick man case or the 9,000 year old man case when essentially archaeologists felt like they won. Um, science won and the natives lost, our oral history lost. And, and that was kind of the mindset of archaeological professors in the community here because they were wanted to learn more about native peoples through the, or not necessarily native peoples, but the remains of the 9,000 year old man um, mm -hmm. who to them wasn't native American at all, which we know to be false now based on genetic tests by es Eskiel Willerslev of Denmark. So I was exposed very early on to our culture. And then in terms of archeology, span my mindset really changed when I did an internship in my master's with our tribe and our cultural resource program. And I began to learn about the injustices that the tribe faced in terms of cultural resource management, that the tribe needed more armed uh, people to be able to fight for the rights of our uh, remains, our archaeology, our human remains, our legendary sites, our monumental sites, ceremonial sites, so all the different uh, traditional cultural properties that we thought were important. So yeah, that was in, in a nutshell kind of how I evolved within the field of anthropology. <laughs> So there's lots of questions that I could ask you out of everything that you just said. And right. I think, I mean, one thing that I was really curious about was, was that first story that you were telling and, you know, how much that, you know, like, was your mom, did she, 
there were the protests there? Did she like purposefully take you there while all this was happening as kind of an educational moment? Or was it more she just went to the museum for the first time and that all kind of happened to be going on? I believe I was I believe she was invited by a local gentleman there that was pretty vocal about Native rights. Um, I remember his face. I remember him speaking. He's a very you know, good speaker and he seemed very charged up about the issue. And, you know, she had kept up with the Native community as much as she could, being a, a hardworking mother who worked, you know, 10 to 12 hours a day, made her job. And um, she tried to expose me as much as possible to our culture, at least, you know, that was available in Memphis. Um, which there isn't a lot of. I mean, in Memphis, a lot of people don't even know Native still exists. And I, I revisited the Chuckalisa Indian Museum or Indian Village in 98. And the, the museum had really suffered as a result of removing their star attraction, which was Native American burials. And they have since redirected their focus on not just Native history, but also the African American history since the the village actually exists on what's what was considered the black side of town because uh, Memphis, although is no longer segregated, the geography hasn't changed much. There's is still reflective of that uh, segre- segregation history of the past. So yeah, it it needed a change economically. It wasn't doing very well, and it. None of the museum had changed since I saw it when I was a kid and there was no tour guides. There was no, there was no real hype. It wasn't a very exciting place to be. It was just like two people working in the museum, um, one at the gift shop and one at the entryway to take your admission. And none of them seemed enthused about being there, but they were all students at the University of Tennessee. And since then, like I said, they they have redirected their focus. And I, I think it's more appropriate to, you know, talk about and discuss and address the African-American history in Memphis since it's so rich. It's, it, it's incredible. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Switching and, and making your museum relevant to the, to the people that are there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, okay. So you went and you talked about getting your bachelor's and your cultural anthropology focus. Woo. Uh, I'm a cultural anthropologist. I don't know if that's come up yet, but so woo. (laughs) And then your, your master's in cultural resource management. Right. And then, so after school, where did you, where did you go from there? What was your, your focus and how did you find work? So it wasn't immediate at all. I, it, there were, I, you know, I kicked around, should I go get a PhD? Because I'm also a McNair scholar. So we're supposed to go get our PhDs. Oh, so a McNair scholar. <laughs> so it, it, Robert McNair was one of the astronauts that was killed in the, in the um, tragedy in 1985, 86. The for, yeah. That's the funny. challenger. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, and it was, it, it was a scholarship for underrepresented minorities and first generation college students. And it was all geared towards getting those populations into uh, PhDs. Hmm. Since he was very highly educated, he was African American, he was first gen. So I filled out the scholarship application and I won it. And I visited grad schools and they, you know, the Robert 
McNair scholarship program flew me to grad schools and um, helped with the GREs, helped me prepare a report that I was supposed to write, like a professional report and um, for publication. And they're really about promoting and um, assisting those populations. So every year I'm supposed to get a postcard from the McNair Scholar Program to say, have you gotten your PhD yet? <laughs> but <laughs> our, our our McNair Scholars Program at Central went under um, due to funding issues and I felt kind of fell through the cracks. Mm. So I haven't gotten those, but it's always been in the back of my mind to go get that PhD. It's just, you know, I, I, I have some, I have some, some things that keep me busy right now. So yeah, just a couple, just a couple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you were, you were thinking about getting a PhD. So right. why didn't you? After grad school. And I think like a lot of grad school, you know, graduates, I was, I just felt done with school. Um, at least for the time yep. being. And I didn't know if I wanted to teach, you know, I don't, I don't want to teach um, at, at college at all. Um, and I felt like I had to learn a lot more on the ground and with the people and the resources in order to take me to that level. You know, I still felt like I was very naive and young and uneducated in the way that the world worked and the way that the, our resources are managed. And I wanted that exposure. So here I am 12 years later working for the accommodation, but it took me about a year to get a job. I got a job with the language program. Then I got a job with Central Washington University um, to like as a tech and then I finally got a job with the Yakima Nation um, in the forestry program and then moved to wildlife and a full-time position um, as their archaeologist. That was in 2007. And now I work for the cultural resources program. So for about a year now. So, yeah, it's been it's been challenging. I've done a lot. I've testified in two court cases, um, one for eagle feathers and one for fishing rights. And then I also have helped provide the historical information to support buffalo hunting in Yellowstone. So now our tribal members can go and hunt in Yellowstone. So I actually was the ethno historian um, that provided that information to support the hunt. So they've been doing that for about three years now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. You just gave me about 10 things to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> That's why these episodes are always so hard. Let's start with the buffalo hunting since that was the last sure. thing you mentioned. Yeah. So what was, what was that process like? It was, it was weird because it was with the federal government because it's a federal park, right? And so there's a different mm -hmm. relationship with the federal government and the tribes or they have the trust responsibility. And before this, rewinding the clock about 10 or plus years, the Nez Perce had established the first hunt and then the Umatilla after. But Nez Perce did. And I'm I'm in-laws with one of the ethnographers for Nez Perce. And they did really extensive ethnographic work, like following the, the Nez Perce trail to the park. Um, where they actually went on the trail as they would have like 200 years ago. Hmm, um, wow. And, um, and uh, you know, they were the, they were, they led that and they established that hunt a long, a while ago. 
Um, and I was always fascinated by that process. Ours was a little different. By then, you already had Nez Perce and Umatilla that had established their hunt. And really, all they needed was some type of historical documentation or proof that we had used it in the past, um, which it it took me off and on about two years to work on that. Uh, it wasn't a big challenge, but geographically speaking, it you know, looking on a map, you're like Yellowstone and the Yakima Nation. There, there, there's quite a distance between the two of them. So mm-hmm. I think to Joe Schmo, they're like, well, how would Yakimas go all the way over there? Well, they did. And I was able to show how and why and all the supporting evidence for that. And the um, federal government said, okay, well, all right. And then created a bunch of regulations as to how that that was going to happen so that there's humane kills and um, that there wasn't over harvesting, you know, that there's all these laws and regulations around harvesting animals on federal land. So um, now it's a permitted process, but I will tell you that, you know, knowing some of the hunters, it, it's not easy. It's, you know, to kill an animal that size, that far away in those kind of temperatures, it, it's very difficult. And I really understand why our people would overwinter in that area, because you, it's not something you could just kill a buffalo and run home with. You can now, but you need a big trailer. You, you know, you need a really big trailer and you need a, right. a party of like five to 10 people um, to right. haul that buffalo. Um, so now I understand. I was like, oh, they overwintered there because those animals were huge. And there was a lot of trade that could could occur but with uh, some of the Plains tribes that we allied with. Huh. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing that they let you do that because so many Park Service units, it's like... Um, you know, you can't pick pinion nuts here. Like <laughs> just, oh. it's hard enough to gather anything, let alone. Um, well, yeah, mm-hmm. they, they, you know, and the, they're basically a nuisance, but Buffalo are nuisance in that park. Mm-hmm. And so they do mass killing slaughters anyway. So, uh, okay. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you, I scratch your back, you scratch my back kind of a thing. So that's where the the trade-off works. Um, It doesn't always work that way. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But in this case, it it does um, for Uh now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I've seen the the Park Service do some creative things to make things work um, for sure. Right. Okay, so it seems like... So you, you're talking about buffalo hunting and you're talking about uh, treaty rights for fish and eagle right. feathers. Right. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's amazing that it's that hard, I guess, to be able to like go gather natural resources in the traditional way. I, I guess, I mean, cause these are like three separate battles. Right. Um, I don't know. Can you just talk about the other two, I guess? Uh, sure. So the, the two legal cases you mentioned. Oh my gosh. So with the Eagle Feather case, that was part of a large sting operation nationwide uh, with multiple informants um, nationwide where the U.S. Fish and Wildlife was trying to crack down on Eagle Feather or killing of eagles. And they tapped heavily into the powwow circuit. Um, because that's where a lot of these feathers were popping up. Hmm. And 
So they were able to turn informants and it, it was really, it was really ugly when I saw all of the documents and, and who was involved. And, and it just gave me such an ugly feeling. Like, is this really where we're at? Where these sacred feathers are not ours anymore. And mm-hmm. some of the things that they were going after just seemed ridiculous. You know, I was like, these are part of our ceremonies. What don't you get about that? And it just felt like the government was trying to have a big aha moment. Like these Indians really are just out to kill all these eagles. They're just, you know, demons, you know, very, uh, it's just ridiculous. And why I got involved was because they were going after not just the eagles, but also the migratory bird species. So also the hawks. So they're trying to lock up our people for hawk feathers and eagle feathers and migratory bird species. And if you know about treaty law, you know that if it's not explicitly written in the treaty, it's it's assumed that a right has been retained. Mm-hmm. So right. and unless it's specifically mentioned in a law, so only Congress can actually abrogate a treaty. So. Migratory bird species doesn't mention Native Americans. And one of the important things that came out of the case was that the migratory bird species did not apply to the Treaty of 1855 signed by the United States and the Yakama Nation. And a lot of people don't know that. But the eagles, eagle laws, the golden eagle, bald eagle laws do specifically mention Native Americans, in which our treaties were abrogated. Um, so there's specific laws for acquisition of of baldy or eagle feathers so what's happening now is a lot of the tribes um, thanks to tribes like zuni and hopi that have already have aviaries um, a lot of other tribes are getting these aviaries so as to avoid persecution i think wrongful persecution of tribal members who are just being indian right Mm -hmm. the 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 past way to get eagle feathers from the federal government doesn't work because you're signing up for eagle feathers. And some of them, the tribes, they require not bald eagles, but golden eagles for their mm-hmm. ceremonies. Um, or they require, you know, they require certain birds um, and certain um, maturity as well um, for their ceremonies. And you're waiting, you know, for golden eagles, you're waiting four plus years, maybe even longer. And you never know what you're going to get. It doesn't work. So I think the tribes are trying to take that, our sovereignty in our own hands and create these aviaries through the legal process set up by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Um, But those relationships really need to improve. And I think what also came of this was that these large, and this sting went on for years. Um, I didn't know this, but everything that led up to the case that I testified on took I, I want to say maybe a decade. Hmm. Yeah. Those things don't work anymore. That way, that approach of going after tribal members for eagle feathers doesn't work. And that there needs to be more partnerships between U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the tribes, or at least better communication. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
we're we're getting to the end of this segment um but two things right. i want to add to this but, and then in the next segment we'll we'll switch to to fish is first of all when you you kept saying informants and that right. is exactly the reason why as a cultural anthropologist i shudder whenever someone uses the word informants in <laughs> for cultural right. anthropology for that right. exact reason right there um and second of all, what you mentioned, Hopi and Zuni and the eagle aviaries. So we actually talked about that in episode one, how Grand Canyon, mm-hmm. they're using some of the the fish in trying to remove invasive species. Um, mm-hmm. they, they reached an agreement with the tribes where instead of killing those fish, some of them would be taken to those aviaries, for example, to feed the eagles. Cool. Yeah. So if... if any of you haven't listened to episode one, go check that out. And we will be back here in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 percent off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code hevo h-e-v-o join us today during the jeep celebration event right now get 20 percent below msrp for an average of 15,178 under msrp on the purchase of a 2023 jeep grand cherokee overland 4xe or summit 4xe not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. All right. And we are back. Okay. So we were just talking about buffalo hunting in Yellowstone and fighting for the right to have eagle feathers. So can you talk about the, you mentioned the, the lawsuit regarding fishing and treaty rights there? Right. So our, one of our fishers, going back to 2013, 14, one of our fishers was fishing for lamprey at Willamette Falls and was ticketed because it was seen that he was fishing outside of state regulations and he was actually taking fish for ceremonies back at home and they all of the eels or lamprey were confiscated and they were laid out on the concrete on the in the hot concrete in may rotting you know while they're Mm. counting in front of him right so this is like a ceremonial uh gathering and they were laid out by Oregon Fish and Wildlife like he was some criminal and ticketed. And then the process of his case went on for too long for the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife to take it to a higher court. So they dropped the case. But the issue still remained whether or not the Yakima Nation, at least in the eyes of the state, whether or not the Yakima Nation had rights to fish in the Portland area. And so one of our other fishermen took smelt out of the Sandy river, which is just outside of Portland and was ticketed. He, the season was like on Saturday and he was fishing on a Wednesday 
and it's there's no there's no permit for this for other folks you just have to fish on a saturday but he was fishing on a wednesday or something like hmm. that so that was the difference and he was ticketed for that and so the state hired a historian and i think put up a lot of these fronts to say we have proof that yakima has never had any use of this area and uh we're going to take this as far as we can to make sure you never come back um and you know and and they've you know we've fished down in willamette falls for eels before and they've threatened us that you show up here we're going to ticket you or we're going to lock you up we're going to take away your boat so there have been a lot of over the course of like two or three years there was a lot of in intimidation being done by Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife against Yakima fishers, um, all so that the Yakimas would abide by Oregon law. But we didn't listen to that. (laughs) (laughs) And um, the case, the Sandy River smelt case went to court in 2015. And one of the things that came out of that was from their historian, and I testified for the tribe, was that because there is no written record that Yakima's fished on the Sandy River, it didn't happen. And so our attorney went turned around and said, well, do you have any record of any Indians fishing on the Sandy? And he said, no. And then he said, well, based on your observation, no Indians have rights on the Sandy River. Keep in mind, you had multiple uses by multiple tribes in this area, in the Portland area, Grand Rounds, Slets, Warm Springs, uh, Cowlitz, Yakima is very pluralistic, um, especially when the British came in and set up Hudson's Bay and there was a lot of trade. Even there was Iroquois that were brought in. There was Hawaiians that were brought in because the Hawaiians got, got along with the natives and um, hmm. thus gave birth to the famous dish Lomi Lomi, <laughs> which was basically salmon packed in salt sent back to Hawaii. And that's that is what Lomi Lomi is, a salt, salty huh. salmon. <laughs> but they were they were the intermediaries between the British and the natives. And there was a lot of intermarriage as well with the Hawaiians. But Portland's a fab like a fascinating area because there were so many different tribes in a very short amount of time between the 1820s and 1850s and then the federal government just said you're all out of here get out you don't belong here move on and and that's essentially what the historic record reflects in a lot of the journals by the governor of oregon and the indian agents to say well all of these indians don't belong here move them north of the columbia and and that's kind of been what's been reflected in the history and that, and that's kind of where the historian went with it was that, well, this is what they say about your people. Therefore it's true. And so as a native who has uh, knowledge, intimate knowledge of our family history of the tribal history of that area, that's very hard for me to swallow that a professional with a background and training that that individual has can say that. Unless that's what they actually believe or that's what they want to believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what that satisfies for a historian to say those kind of things. But it has it. What it shows is how dangerous that anthropology and hi- historians can be when writing things down. What mm-hmm. they write 
can be interpreted as fact a hundred years from now. And that and that's what we're seeing. That's what we are living right now. That is our fight is deconstructing the colonized perspective of how natives use the land and what that relationship was. So what happened with the case? I'm like on the edge of my seat. <laughs> so we it, it was tried it, it was tried in county superior court. So it was heard by by a judge that oversaw traffic ticket. It was a traffic court judge. No background in in tribal treaty right. He had no background. So he sided with the state and said, basically, the president is set by this court that if it's not written down by a non-native, it didn't happen. Oof. And that's still floating around out there. And so our our uh, Fisher took one for the team on this one. And his ticket was reflective of his background and everything. So it wasn't an overly harsh, an overly harsh penalty, but... Uh, to show you how important this was, it was heard by the one of the deputy attorney generals for the state of Oregon. It was it, by the by the big chief attorney in the state of Oregon was trying the case against the Yakima Nation. That's how important this case was for them. Wow. Yeah, we weren't dealing with a, a little a little prosecuting attorney. We were dealing mm-hmm. with the big the big cheese. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I guess it was, I mean, was there any attempted appeal? No, there wasn't. It, it was felt that a, an appeal in the appellate process, appellate courts of state of Oregon would not be any more gracious with us and that it would, yeah. it would likely have to be a federal question, which it should be. It, it is a federal question whether or not, and there's already well-established case law for this, U.S. v. Washington and U.S. v. Oregon. U.S. v. Oregon's the longest-running federal court case regarding fishing rights in the U.S., and it's it's still going on. So whether or not the state of Oregon can interfere with tribal treaty fishing rights has been a question since 1968, and it's actually the anniversary is – this year was the Bologna decision, um, the 50th anniversary just passed. So it's a, a lot of people don't know about that. And it's a really important case. So for those listening that don't know about that, could you briefly explain? So in the 1960s and 50s, heck, all the way back in the 1800s, Yakima Nation and the Columbia River tribes have been fighting for uh, tribal treaty rights Nine times we've been in the Supreme Court about tribal treaty fishing rights. Nine times against the state of Oregon, state of Washington, and we've won. But in the 50s and the 60s, there was a lot of tension about who had the ability to regulate fishing. And the states really wanted to regulate tribal uh, fishing rights. And they lacked the jurisdiction but they were coming down hard on our fishermen everywhere. So there were individuals, there was 14 individuals, 14 plaintiffs, all of which had been defendants in um, smaller courts. And basically what happened was these fishermen said, you know, enough's enough. We're not going to get any support from the tribe, the tribal governments. We're just going to try this all in smaller courts until we get all of our rights established. So they were seen as renegades by some, and they're seen by heroes by others, uh, because they took it upon themselves with their own money, their own risk of being uh, jailed, um, to go out and challenge the states. 
and go out and get cited and challenge them, you know, in the smaller courts. Uh, and then there was 14 of the original fishermen that were all persecuted at one point in time from the 1950s to the 1960s to fishing below Bonneville Dam in the Portland area. And they wanted to establish what they understood to be our tribal treaty rights, which is fishing all the way to the mouth of the Columbia. And um, it it was gaining a lot of momentum and a lot of traction and support from the West West Side tribes of Washington. And there was a lot of real important individuals, Billy Frank uh, being one of them. David So Happy on on was one of the plaintiffs in in this uh, U.S. v. Oregon or So Happy v. Smith, as it was originally called. And then the tribes jumped in. Uh, tribal governments jumped in because it was starting to get so much momentum and it looked like they were going to win. So they jumped in and sure enough, U.S. v. Oregon was won by the Baloney decision. Baloney, Judge Baloney was, uh, and those of you who are listening, yeah, I, would, I would look this up, what, what he said. And basically the state of Oregon couldn't interfere, couldn't interfere with the tribal treaty rights that they had established, you know, almost 100 years prior. Um, in another fishing case, the U.S. v. Winans uh, case, that these tribes had ingress and egress rights to their fishing sites, that nobody could block them from those fishing sites, both on the Washington shore and the Oregon shore. So for the the people listening that are like, but they're just fish, like, why can't you yeah. wait and get a permit like everybody else? Like, what what would the, the response be to that? Beyond the treaty rights, and a lot of people will say, oh, this is our treaty right to fish. These are inherent rights. These go beyond the treaty rights. These are ones that we were born with. Since the beginning of time, we have taken fish. According to archaeologists, we've been harvesting for the last 8,000 years, but to us, it's been forever. So they go well beyond treaty fishing rights. It's, it is the inherent right to take fish in all usual and accustomed places. And that is mentioned in all each one of the, the Stevens treaties with the Columbia River tribes. So taking a permit would be like a slap in the face because you basically have this new little foreign government trying to bully us who've been here forever <laughs> and say, you need a permit to take your fish. Which is it's just a huge insult, and and sometimes it, it feels it definitely feels like they'd be happy with us just going to Safeway or Walmart and buying our salmon and buy and buying all of our fish instead of going out and harvesting them. But that and that's a much longer history and backstory to that. Well, I mean, how would it be different than say going to Walmart and just buying your fish there? It it would it wouldn't be different. It wouldn't be. And in fact, when they were putting in the dams, there was consideration by the Department of U.S. Department of Commerce to eliminate all fish above Bonneville Dam. This is bef- uh, this is just before they were going to put in the Dallas Dam. So uh, there was a, a uh, Swindell. I forgot his first name. Anyway, he went in and did all of the survey of all the fisheries in Washington, including Celilo, um, which is a, one of the most important fisheries in the Pacific Northwest on the Columbia River, and mapped out all of the fishing sites. And what they were considering was the cost of eliminating all fish above Bonneville Dam, so they didn't have to think about fish passage for any future dams. And that, that was in consideration with our, our uh, government at the time. So, and, and I'm thankful that that never happened. But that, that just goes to show you, I think, um, how 
how dangerous um, the government can be in the decisions that they make because they can eliminate entire species because they were considering it. But I think it was too costly. And I think the public outcry would be too much. And, and I think it was also determined by the biologists that they actually, those little fish that were f- swimming upstream, they were going to do something important that would help with the propagation of the species, right? So it was part of their process. So if you cut them from the upstream where they were spawning, then you're basically eliminating all fish. So it would affect the commercial fishermen below Bonneville negatively. So, I mean, has this been, while you've been working for the tribe, um, (laughs) I mean, we've talked again about fishing rights. We've talked about eagle feathers. We've talked about buffalo hunting. Is this, is the gathering of natural resources and natural resources as cultural resources, do you feel like that's like been a main focus of, of your work at the tribe? Um, you know, we, I don't feel like we've even talked about the archaeology part of this. Yet. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I, but these issues swallow you up. They take years mm-hmm. out of your time, the fishing rights, the hunting rights. Um, they take up years of your time. They can require so much dedication because essentially all of the responsibility for upholding these treaty rights is partly on your shoulders as an expert. And that's a huge weight to bear, especially being a tribal member. Um, You have no idea like the hours of sleep I've lost and the hours I put in of my own time to work to make sure that everything comes out right. So um, it's incredibly stressful. On top of the fact that we also have a responsibility to the traditional cultural property management on state and federal lands in our entire ceded territory, which I, again, I have not discussed with you on this segment um, yet, um, which is another whole big monster in and of itself. Yeah. Okay. Well, while we're on this subject, I think we're about at the end of this segment. Okay. And then maybe in the next segment, we can, we can jump into all of that. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So we will be right back here in a minute. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We are back and God, I wish all of you could listen in our conversations in these breaks because they're amazing. (laughs) I feel like you guys miss so much, including the fact that our guest here is a world champion. (laughs) (laughs) A long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) But from none other than the Mashantucket Pequot. So that's right. Shout out to episode 12. If you haven't listened to that one yet, 
uh, John was just talking about how beautiful the Mashantucket Pequot area is. So you awesome. should check it out. Yes. And yes. their fabulous museum. Yep. Okay. So jumping back to the actual topics, we talked a lot just now about natural resources and you mentioned we haven't even gotten to the archaeology yet. No. So I'm curious in your time as a tribal archaeologist for the, the Yakima Nation and ethnographer, don't want to forget us ethnographers, what have been some of the main types of projects that you've been working on? So, you know, archaeology, ethnography, oral history, TCPs. I don't know. What are the what are the big things that you guys have been working on other than these these natural resource issues? Okay, so in 2007, I was hired as a wildlife archaeologist, which was funded by Bonneville Power Administration. They were paying the Yakima Nation since 1993 for mitigation of loss to wildlife habitat as a result of the construction and operation and maintenance of the hydroelectric dams on the Columbia River. So in 1993, uh, the tribe had created a plan for wet, for wildlife mitigation where they could you know, basically turn it over to BPA and say, this is what we want. And the BPA is like, okay, yeah. And said, so they funded our project. This is all a result of the Northwest Power Act where the federal agencies were required to consider their impacts to the resources. Fish were already considered uh, as being impacted, but wildlife, they weren't. They were willing to challenge that until a biological opinion was was um, put out in like 88 or 89. And then after that, they didn't have any choice. So they had to mitigate for those damages. So instead of trying to restore wetland and wildlife habitat along the Columbia River, which is a dysfunctional system. It no longer functions as a river. It functions as a series of lakes. So in order to directly benefit the tribe, we opted to have all of our restoration take place on reservation. So what the program does is buys back or leases trust land in order to restore the land to historic use. So as to bring back foods and medicines and, you know, just connect everything back together as well as connect the people with the land. So the goal was to purchase 27,000 acres. The program is at 23,000 acres now. And so in order to, since you're spending federal funds, guess what? Huh? You triggered NHPA. So they hired an archaeologist at the beginning and I was the third archaeologist to hold that position. Um, that's just a little bit of what I do, not including the work I do with Pacific Core on hydroelectric dams on the Lewis River, the Cowlitz River, and then also Grant County PUD dams on the Upper Columbia portion um, near Hanford. So I'm pretty busy looking after about, uh, I would say, 17 reservoirs. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Aside from all of the other stuff we talked about, there's... There's this responsibility as well. Mm -hmm. And then are there other agencies that you work with as well in, in other capacities? Um, some with U.S. Forest Service from time to time. And then a little bit with national parks down in Fort Vancouver. I'm trying to think whatever. But a lot of it is Bonneville Power. And, and mm -hmm. I should also mention that all of the compliance work um, for the fisheries program for 10 years was done or overseen by me. 
and that's uh, that God, that's going to be well over a hundred projects that were either surveyed by me or my staff. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of core, a lot of BPA. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like it. So, yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's, it's more section 106. Do you get to a lot of more proactive type of projects? Not as much as we need to. Um, I, I did get some mitigation funds for, compiling like a site atlas so we use those funds to hire uh, we had two youth workers or summer youth workers or college students one of them was really proficient in the language and she put together every place name that we had into an excel spreadsheet Um, like every single one that i could throw at her all of our reports all past reports publications Anything yeah. I can throw on her. And she just put it all together. I was like, I want it all together so that we know what we have and we can start building our knowledge of what, you know, what our recorded knowledge into this database. Um, so that if anything happens with any of our tribal elders, our program manager is 85. That's always been a fear in the back of our minds that, you know, here's a wealth of knowledge that's leading us. What if we don't have that? You know, we don't have him to go back to and say, what does this mean in our language? And what is this, what place, you know, how is this place significant? You know, and he can tell us because he's fluent. He grew up that way. He was raised by his grandparents for the most part. You know, he's a tribal leader. He was our chairman. He was a religious leader since the age of 16. Um, He's been a huge um, wealth of knowledge for the program and for the tribe. And to lose that is, is a really scary thing for us. So having to think proactively is maybe not something we want to do right now, but I mean, somebody has to, somebody has to prepare for this, to have all of that knowledge, at least part of it into an accessible database. Um, Yeah. So, you know, that we don't get those opportunities. We don't have enough of those opportunities. So much of what we do as tribal archaeologists is reactionary to outside government agencies and what their needs are, what their project needs are, what, you know. So that's why every day as a tribal archaeologist, you don't know what you're doing. You're walking in and you don't know whether you're going to get patted on the back or uh, punched in the face kind of thing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, you don't know how you're going to be treated and you don't know what the day will um, has in store for you. Um, mm-hmm. It's always like you're on triage, like all the time, triage. You know, take care of the ones that are going to survive and I'm sorry for the ones that aren't, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. It's it's not ideal and I and I've the more I connect with other tribal archaeologists, I find this to be true throughout Indian country. I don't know if it's a universal truth, but I'm starting to notice a pattern that we're all fighting to provide consistency on a daily basis for our staff because our staff mm-hmm. are the ones that get things done um, mm-hmm. on the ground. And so what I can do as a supervisor is be a shield to all the other things that they don't need to pay attention to. And right. I, I may not be the best at that. I, ha- I know I haven't been in the past, but I, I know it's, I'm cre- trying to create a better system than I, what I walked into. Hmm. Um, we're, you know, I inherited five different projects that all the money was spent, but none of the work was done kind of a thing, you know. Oh, uh, that's the worst. Exactly. And, and, and it seems to be a reoccurring 
theme from other archaeologists I've talked to as well. It's just like, but I realize we're working in a broken system. If you're always having to um, respond to outside agencies and outside funding, when are we as tribes ever going to determine our own fate about cultural resources? And and it's a real catch-22 between taking funding from the outside and trying to get funding to do the work you want to do. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, I mean, most of my time is paid for by outside entities, not the tribe. Why is that? Why, what kind of, what, what does that set up? Uh, what kind of system does that set up where we can't actually do the work that has meaning internally to the tribe? We have to somehow fold that into the work that we're doing for the outside en- entities. Right. So, and uh, that's a real challenge because those those purse strings, you know, they, there's requirements, there's expectations, there's a certain amount of transparency and relin- you know, how much information do we relinquish or hold back? How much do they right. want and demand? You know, that's the real challenge. You know, you're dealing with, with sacred knowledge and sacred information. How much should you be sharing? Are you sharing enough that they're able to manage the resources adequately, adequately to a, a standard that would be acceptable to our elders or, um, or are we just going to hold on to it and then let them flail around and possibly destroy a site? And even though we've in the past, we have shared a ton of information, you know, does that resonate with the people that you're sharing that with? Do they really understand the sacredness of uh, of a site that doesn't have any archaeological value, you know, something that's tied to our oral history that's thousands and thousands of years old is basically is a big rock to them. But to us, it's it's a beacon to why the salmon are in the river. It's a, It goes back to a story of how Coyote, who was their trickster, guided the salmon up the river and protected them. You know, those are the kind of things that we've shared in the past, but it, to them, it's like mythology. It's, it's make-believe, right? Right. But, but no, this is a creation story. I mean, it, and, uh, and it also contributes to eligibility of these sites that aren't, that aren't archaeological. So looking at other sites outside of the archaeology is also an important part of what we do as tribes. To them like, hey, guys, we're not just looking at stones and bones. There are these rocks, these mountains that hold cultural significance that are eligible under A and B uh, for their National Register eligibility. So uh, that was a tough fight. Um, It's still kind of a tough fight, but I I find that the archaeological community are more open to TCPs now than the generation before. Mm -hmm. Um, They're requiring less information. And they're able to do more with that little bit of information that they get. And I think that's because, you know, Bulletin 38, you know, is finally resonating with with archaeologists that are teaching cultural resource management in colleges. Right. So the generation before didn't have that exposure. It was new. It was inconvenient. Tribes are just getting in the way of cultural resources. You know, my boss in the 80s, you know, he was kicked out of a meeting that was being held by the Corps of Engineers and Bonneville Power 
in the 80s. Um, and it was about cultural resources on core lands. He was kicked out with himself and our tribal chairman. They said that they didn't have any place there. There was no nothing of interest for them because they were just talking about archaeology. Mm. So they're they're you know that's not that far back. So there's this education that's needed to happen, and this is the reality of what we have to face as tribal archaeologists every single day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's madness yeah. it's madness anybody want to sign up come on talk to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean i i know exactly what you're talking about because that's that's my job too you know right as a as an ethnographer working on tcp chapter you know projects it's like oh um it's a lot of responsibility you know yeah it definitely definitely you know my hat's off to anybody no matter who they are what their background is that want to work with tcps and the information sharing that needs to occur and dealing with those you know intellectual property rights and dealing with the education of outside people about the importance of those because it's it is a full-time job and if i have i'm part archaeologist part ethnographer and i don't Mm -hmm. know how i keep up with it but if you were able to really do what you wanted to do as a tribe, as far as cultural resources, what would that look like? I don't know about the other people in my tribe. I, I know what I want to do and mm-hmm. I, I wanted to dedicate all of my energy towards place name identification and why those names exist and what are the inherent resources within each of those areas. Because I want to be able to point on a map at any time and say, that's the place name for that. That's where we gathered this and that. You know, I want to know that. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like we may be going towards a time if dams are removed or if things start to change. I mean, there's obviously the change that's going to take place. We're at a point where the way that we manage our water on the Columbia River is no longer going to be sustainable for the life of of our salmon given global warming given the water temperatures it's not possible uh, we are no longer going to have fish 50 years from now the way that things are being managed and i think we're at a tipping point we're either going to remove these things or we're just going to eliminate the fish and it, i believe in the power of the salmon the dams were taken out by coyote you know thousands of years ago it was it's in our legends coyote tore through all of the dams that were created by the different entities so that the salmon could migrate and i I believe in that power of the fish i believe in the power of the river and when we're able to return to that way of life before the like how it was before the dams were in to that fish um that life with the fish I want that knowledge to be available for our youth and our kids uh, because I realize it's been so devastated by so many of the different laws, uh, you know, from allotment to the reservation period to termination period, all of these different things in which they've tried to pick us apart. And, you know, Uncle Sam knew what he was doing um, and he's been very effective because some people are have completely assimilated, but there are those that have not those that want to go back 
And I see a re- revitalization of our language. I see a revitalization in our arts. And I see a re- revitalization in the way that we manage cultural resources. Because these things are important to us. If they were not, we would have, as tribes, we would have never persisted the way that we have against the forces that we have on a national, on a local, in an academic university setting. We have persisted that we have always been here and these resources are important to us. We would have given up that a long time ago if they weren't, especially under all of those pressures. Oh, well, it feels kind of ridiculous to follow that up with anything. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be honest, but we are coming to the end. So really quick, I want to mention your blog, first of all. So if people are interested in hearing more from you, there's nativeanthro.com. And there's some really interesting articles on there that I think a lot of you would really appreciate, like seven effective tools for anthropologists working with tribes. That one was super great. Um, another one that was how is archaeology culturally appropriating Native American culture? So some really like interesting topics that we've talked about on the the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're you're looking for that, again, it's nativeanthro.com and we'll have that in the show notes as well. Thank you. And then, I mean, we didn't even get to talking about your work teaching the language we didn't get to talk about i mean you're also an artist um you know the blog so much there so definitely go to to his blog and and follow him there we can talk about my kids either i can talk about my kids all yeah day. didn't talk about your kids <laughs> didn't talk, I mean, like, we didn't there was so many things we didn't talk about i guess so anything that you want to add before we close out that we didn't get to so far? No, I, I, I think I'll cut it at that. And I just want to thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. I'm always happy to share information um, that is important to us and provide any type of education that needs to be um, heard, I guess. So please reach out to me at nativeanthro.com or nativeanthro at gmail.com be more than happy to answer your questions so thank you well thank you thanks for listening to the heritage voices podcast you can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices please subscribe to the show on itunes stitcher or the google music store also if you like the show please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org, or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.